Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law, which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, that they may bring you an unblemished red heifer, in which is no defect, and on which a yoke has never been placed. And you shall give it to Eliezer, the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. And there where you see the words, brought outside, outside, hukas. Interesting title, uh, because this is the sacrifice that is done outside of the camp. Other sacrifices that we have heard of are always done inside, near the altar. But this one requires a separate altar to be set up outside of the camp, and this is a sacrifice that is taken outside of the camp. It goes on to say, let me read for you this portion that describes the sacrifice. Verse 4, Next, Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of his blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its hide and its flesh and its blood and its refuse shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. The priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until the evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. And the one who gathers the ashes of the red heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And it shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. And then he shall be clean. If he does not purify himself on the third day and also on the seventh day, he shall not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself and defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him, and he shall be unclean. His uncleanliness is still on him. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. And every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also anyone who is in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Then for the unclean person they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin and flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. And a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it into the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there, on the one who touched the bone or the one slain or the one dying naturally or the grave. Then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean of the third and on the seventh day and on the seventh day he shall purify himself from uncleanliness. He shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be clean by evening. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity 
has not been sprinkled on him, he is unclean. So it shall be a perpetual statute for them. And he who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. This is a very interesting procedure. It's reminiscent of some of the teachings that we saw back in the book of Leviticus. There were certain laws of purity that the book of Leviticus dealt with. Those laws back there tended to deal with things more about disinfection and uh, cleanliness that had to do with the prevention of disease. This particular procedure, though, however, is a little bit unique. And in fact, there is quite a mystery associated with this procedure. Interestingly enough, King Solomon makes reference to this procedure. Now, King Solomon was the wisest man in the world, in the history of the world. And what he said was that whatever he set his mind to know, the wisdom of it to know, God granted to him to know. But concerning this, he did not know. Isn't that interesting? The King Solomon trying to understand what is the right of purification through the ash of the red heifer, the wisest man of the world, gives testimony. And this is known widely throughout all of Israel. He himself said, I do not understand this. I don't understand this procedure. How is it that the clean somehow become unclean and those who are unclean become clean? You would think the one who was clean would go out and scrub and clean more. But instead, in the course of cleansing and becoming the clean, they become unclean. Everybody associated with the sacrifice becomes unclean. The man who leads the heifer out becomes unclean. The man who builds the altar becomes unclean. The man who starts the fire becomes unclean. The man who puts the sacrifice up on the altar becomes unclean. The guy who brings the ashes back becomes unclean. The guy who puts the ashes into the container to be used becomes unclean. The guy who takes the hyssop thing and sprinkles the other people to make them clean, he becomes unclean. The guy who gets sprinkled by it becomes clean. This was the procedure that they used to use every day to prepare the priesthood in the temple. One priest would have the duty of taking a pinch of this ash, putting it into the basin, putting it in with flowing water, taking the hyssop branch and sprinkling the priest for the day. And then that was his duty for the day. He was unclean for the rest of the day. He left the temple. In, in and around all of the land of Israel, the ashes of the red heifer were scattered and went out to various communities. And in the, an observant home throughout the land, they would set up these very large jars. And they would have water come flowing into it. Usually rainwater or something like that. It had to be a living water. It had to be a flowing water that they had gotten. And they would put a pinch of the ash in it, and that was the water they used for purification purposes. If there was a question about whether or not you were ready to go to the temple. Well, you would be sprinkled with the hyssop branch with this. Of course, whoever it was that did it, that person became unclean until the evening of that day. This very unique, interesting procedure. I want to read for you um, part of the definition that is given. This is uh, Rabbi Hertz's commentary, the Humash on the teaching of the Torah. 
And there's a little um, editorial he has written up in here, and I want to read it to you because it's kind of revealing in, uh, in Jewish thought of the sages about this whole procedure. And he writes of this procedure, it provides for the removal of defilement resulting from contact with the dead. A red heifer free from blemish and one that has not yet been broken to the yoke was to be slain outside the camp. It was then burned, cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet being cast upon the fire. The gathered ashes dissolved in fresh water were to be sprinkled on those who had become contaminated through the contact with the dead body. This ordinance is the most mysterious rite in scripture the strange features of which are duly enumerated by the rabbis. Thus its aim was to purify the defiled, and yet it defiled all those who were in any way connected with the preparation of the ashes and the water of purification. It purifies the impure and at the same time renders the impure the pure. So inscrutable was its nature, they said, that even King Solomon in his wisdom despaired of learning the secret meaning of the red heifer regulations. To a high-placed Roman questioner, who expressed his amazement at the procedure in connection with the red heifer, Yochanan ben Zakkai replied by referring him to a pagan analogy. Just as a person afflicted by melancholy or possessed of an evil spirit is freed of his disease by taking certain medications or by the burning of certain roots, in the same manner the ashes of the red heifer prepared in the prescribed way and dissolved in the water drive away the unclean spirit or defilement resulting from contact with the dead. Now listen to this part. The Roman was satisfied with the answer and went his way. Thereupon the pupils of Yochanan said to him, That man's attack thou hast warded off with a broken reed. But what answer hast thou for us? By your lives, said the master, the dead man doth not make impure. Neither do the ashes dissolved in water make pure. But the law concerning the red heifer is a decree of the all-holy, whose reasons for issuing that decree it behooves not mortals to question. In brief, the attitude of Judaism as to the meanings of this law is not merely a confession of ignorance, but the realization that we shall never know why such defilement should be removed in that specified manner. Nevertheless, there have been many attempts at explanation, at any rate of symbolization, of this law both by Jews and non-Jews. One of them is the majestic cedar of Lebanon represents pride, and the hyssop represents humility, uncleanness, and sin, and death are all associated with the ideas. There, the ceremony, therefore, is a powerful object lesson teaching the eternal truth that a holy God can be served only by a holy people. Now, it's interesting to note that the rabbis don't understand it. The sages of Israel don't understand it. The wisest man of Israel doesn't understand it. They just know they're supposed to do it. But I submit to you that there is an explanation for it. There most certainly is an explanation for it. The sacrifice that is taken outside of the camp, that has the ability to take on sin and thus purify the person that it was for. There's only one sacrifice that's been like that, and that was the sacrifice of Yeshua. He was the Messiah who gave up his life, who was taken outside of the city and sacrificed right at the same place the red heifer is sacrificed. At the same place. And there he has the power 
to make you pure. And he takes your sin upon himself. And he dies for you. There's nothing really particularly hard or mysterious about this. It's pretty straightforward, in fact. But only in understanding the work of the Messiah do we have any chance of knowing or understanding what the ashes of the red heifer is about. To illustrate and emphasize that, I'm sure you're familiar with the very first miracle of Yeshua at the wedding of Cana. It's recorded there for us in uh, John 2. And if you remember the setting, they were there at the wedding and everybody's having a good time and they've drank up all the wine. And there's no more wine. And uh, so Yeshua's mother, Mary, comes over to him and says, Hey, uh, Yeshua, uh, we're running out of wine. Now, there's an interesting interchange between him and his mother, and it goes to the probably there's some history that has happened between the two of them because it's clear that she thinks he can make wine, that he can answer this problem of we're running out of wine. And in fact, it's clear that Yeshua has done this before because he says, what am I to do with you, woman? You know, you're always coming over here to get something for someone. And this apparently this thing about breaking bread and making more bread and maybe making wine out of water and other kinds of things, maybe this stuff has been going on in the home of Yeshua with his mother and she knows all about this. So she comes and makes a request. And he's trying to explain to her, my time is not yet. We can't be going out showing people this kind of thing. You can almost see the interchange between the son and the mother. You know, they're running a little low on wine. Can you get us some more wine, Yeshua? Interestingly enough, she says, when she gets his agreement, I love this line. She tells the other servants, whatever he says to do, do it. It's going to sound weird, but do it. So you know what he does? He walks out to those big jars of the water of purification. And he says, fill them to the brim. They fill them to the brim. And then he says, draw out from that water. And that's where the wine came from. The wine came out of the jars that had the water with the ashes of the red heifer. So there's a connection here between the ashes of the red heifer and what Yeshua is doing and these other things. A pretty big connection, I might add, in this whole affair. In our days, the idea of the ashes of the red heifer is also a very interesting topic. There's a certain heifer by the name of Melody, I believe, in the land of Israel, which is approximately 10 to 11 months old, which has been declared a miracle red heifer. It has parents which have black and white hair, but this one has all red hair. Now, for this to qualify as the proper red heifer, there cannot be any more than two hairs of either a white or a black color. It must be all red. And this uh, heifer has been announced, since it, it's considered a miracle heifer because its parents are not red, and they have called the various rabbis from around Israel to come and inspect this heifer. And all the rabbis that have come have qualified this heifer, Melody, to be qualified to be the red heifer for the sacrifice. And in fact, uh, I can remember back last fall when the first reports were coming out. We had some friends over there in the land of Israel who actually visited the farm where the heifer's at to take a look for themselves. 
It was being announced by the rabbis that it was a miracle and a sign from God. Specifically, it's a sign from God that the temple will be set up soon in our days. That's the quote from the rabbis. Well, nowadays, the red heifer is starting to cause a stir because the secular Jews who are concerned that the religious Jews may try to actually get a piece of the Temple Mount over there in the Middle East and foul up everything, they are concerned that this red heifer has now begun to symbolize the conflict in the Middle East. And oh, by the way, it has. It does symbolize the conflict. Will we have the sacrifice of the red heifer, the establishment of the altar in Israel, the establishment of the priesthood, and the altar service? Because it takes the ashes of the red heifer to purify the priesthood, to be able to execute the daily service. Now, there's some other people also who've been for a number of years. I can remember going back all the way into the 1970s. There were certain archaeologists, Christian archaeologists, that were looking for the ash of the red heifer. There's several people who are looking for that. Now, um, the idea being that originally when the sacrifice was done, Moses was the first to go out and actually do it with Eliezer, and the idea was to take some of that ash as you ran down, as it ran out, was to take some of that ash as you got your new red heifer, was sprinkle the red heifer with this, this remaining ash. And then when it was completely consumed and burned and all the way to the ash thing, you had some of the original ash from the original sacrifice. Now that quantity came forward, it was distributed throughout the land, it was used, and when they started to run out, they get another red heifer, they go back, they take the original ash, they sprinkle it, we have this perpetual sacrifice going on. Um, and the reason why a lot of the archaeologists are looking for the ashes of the red heifer so that they'll have the original ash to go with this new sacrifice. Will it be in the same place as where the sacrifice used to be taking place in Jerusalem, and that was on the Mount of Olives directly east, or directly, yeah, directly east of the temple? I don't know. Could be. That's where it's supposed to be done. But let's say they do it down in the Hebron Hills like they did the other day. So what? If they're willing to go through and do it, then they'll do it. Whether they followed according to what Moses has said here or not, I would like to see them follow the procedure that Moses has given, but they, they could do something else. And then when they go to purify the priest... I'm pretty sure they will use some ashes. As to whether or not those priests are actually purified before the Lord, I don't know. I don't know how strict God is with this particular procedure. I do know this, that it's a mysterious procedure, and it's going to bear great testimony, you know, to the world. It will be the first sacrifice that will happen before they start the actual lamb sacrifices on the altar. This will be the real burnt offering because it will be burned all the way down to the ash. And so I would imagine that this sacrifice, wherever they do it, is going to get a lot of attention. And it's going to cause a big ruckus in Israel when it finally does happen. Interesting how this procedure, which comes way back in Moses' time, at the start of the tabernacle and the work there, is such a current issue for our days today. Yeah, I think it's a testimony to the things that are in this book do apply to us today. They are not just old things that have gone away. They do bear testimony to things that are happening with us today. Uh, the book of Hebrews mentions the ashes of the red heifer in trying to illustrate and explain to us 
Quite honestly, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the red heifer, they only dealt with the defilement of the flesh. They never answered the real issue of your heart, the defilement of your heart, that only the sacrifice of Yeshua has the power to deal with that. And so all these are simply, they're typologies, they're, they're symbols, they come forth, they illustrate us, they pique our attention, they get us to look at the work of the Messiah. And I think the very nature of the sacrifice of the red heifer is consistent with the message to get us to look to the Messiah. Because the reality is that when you decide to make Yeshua, the Messiah, your personal sacrifice... It is a little bit like what what, uh, Paul was talking about. You know, that you, at that point, you become crucified. He takes your sin on. And one of the realities that I think comes with personal confession of the Lord is this one. Had you been the only one, had you been the only person who would have accepted that sacrifice, He would have taken your personal sin on and he would have fulfilled it and done it. To illustrate quite how that works, how he became impure for you and what your sin did with him and how you got his purity. Um, It was illustrated for me as a young man. One time I was in an audience and the fellow stood up and he said, okay, guys, he said, "To to get the sense of what this is about, how this he who's pure becomes impure, and he who's impure becomes pure. This, this work that God does, you need to understand what the Lord did for you when he was on the cross. You need to understand what he did for you personally. So he looked out over the assembly, as I'm looking out over you, and he posed this question to us. He said, I want you to all think privately and quietly to yourself of one sin that you have done in your life there's no question about it, this was sin. You know this was sin. Think of one sin that you have done. And then he kind of moved his eyes over the audience and he says, okay, I'm going to ask one of you to stand and tell us what that was. And he kind of, his eyes moved like this. And man, you could see the waves of people, kind of their eyes dropping down. You could almost hear them under their breath going, oh God, don't call on me. And he stopped and he said, what are you feeling? What would you do had I called you and you had to stand in the assembly and explain your sin? And one guy cried out. He, he, he was being honest. He said, I, it, it would kill me. He said, that's right. You see, that's exactly what it did to Yeshua. He had your sin on him. He felt it and he had to face it and it killed him. And that's how that process took place. How you lost that sin, you became pure, and he became impure for you. Is it went on? To, that's the reason why the Isaiah the prophet says that the sin of the world was put upon him. He had to face it. We duck from it. We hide from it. We avoid it. He had to come face to face with it, and it killed it. One person's sins was sufficient to kill him. Only he took all of our sins on. Even the sins of people who will not ask for his forgiveness. Even those who will not accept his sacrifice, he even took those sins on. 
And man, they killed him dead in a doornail. I mean, they killed him quick. That's what the ashes, the red heifer, mean for us. That's that sacrifice that's outside of the camp, you know, that is symbolized of the work of Yeshua for us. Amen? Uh, let me turn a little bit further and, and uh, tell you some other things that are in this portion. There's some, there's, from here on out, it gets exciting in the book of uh, Numbers for us. In chapter 20, it mentions for us that Miriam has died, that she has passed on, and then the whole congregation comes to a place, and one of the constant issues that happened in the desert, there, there was no water. In chapter 20, verse 2, it says, And there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and for our beasts to die here? And why have you made us to come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. That was the key issue. But as long as we're complaining, let's go ahead and pile in. There's no vines, there's no pomegranates, you know, the other stuff. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly of the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their face, faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock twice with his rod and water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those are the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. Very interesting story. It costs Moses the trip to the promised land. Now, you'd think Moses' ticket is definitely punched to go to the promised land. And he's the guy who's lived for 80 years and brought him up out of Pharaoh's hand, crossed the Red Sea, went to the mountain, spent 40 days on the mountain a couple of times with the Lord. Surely Moses' ticket is punched to go to the promised land, but even he fouls it up. There is a simple uh, statement that is given in the teaching which says, as you mature in the Lord, when you make a mistake in maturity, it's a big one. As you rise in maturity to the Lord, you need to make less and less mistakes. Because when you make a mistake, it's a doozy. In this particular case, he failed to obey the Lord. The Lord said, take your rod, assemble the people, speak to the rock. He didn't say strike the rock. Speak to him. But what did he do? He kind of seized the moment there. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that this was a key issue. And he decided to kind of play a game with the children of Israel. He decided to kind of get back at them a little bit. He's kind of frustrated and tired with them. 
And he says, what do we have to do? What do we have to do? Hit a rock to make water come for you people? He's not going to make the water come for the rock. God is. But he seizes the moment for his own personal thing. To kind of, you know, put his digs into the sons of Israel. They've been bugging him for a long time. He finally knows something that's going to happen, so he decides to play it to his means. That's the problem with knowing the future, by the way, brethren. You don't have the wisdom to use it correctly. You would probably try to exploit it to your own personal advantage. And in this case, Moses makes a big mistake. He decides to exploit the situation to his favor. And so he makes his bold statement, and he forgets one little thing. It was speak to the rock. It was speak to the rock. But instead, he takes his stick and he whacks the rock. This, too, is prophetic. This, too, was prophetic. It meant that the big shepherd of Israel was going to be struck, too. Instead of the people speaking to them, they would strike him down twice. And I think afterwards, I think he realized what he'd done. So this is what you call a doozy of a mistake. A big mistake. And even Moses knew, yeah, you're right. I, I just lost my ticket to the promised land over that one. The thing, I guess, that I would offer um, with regard to that is the issues of what happens when strife comes. That's what Meribah means there, the waters of strife. When strife come in amongst the brethren, I don't care if you're a Moses, you'll usually make mistakes. Strife brings out the worst in all of us, even leaders, even leaders. I've always taught people that leadership, particularly congregational leadership, is measured by how you deal with conflict. How, in the face of unloving brethren, you continue to love. In the face of those who are ungrateful for the service, you continue to serve. That's the measure of those who will be great amongst us. And in the case of Moses, he had done a pretty good job up to this point. He had offered his life for the congregation. He had gone face down before the Lord many times for him, but this time his ego rose up, forgot the instructions of the Lord, and made a scene. Well, the, the people got the water. The people got the water. They were happy. But Moses took the consequences for his actions. Um, for those of you who are hoping to aspire to leadership, I don't want to discourage you, but you really don't want it when you find out what the consequences are for making a mistake. It is much easier and much better, as, as an old phrase I heard in my Navy days, ignorance is bliss. You know, there, there is a certain privilege that comes with being stupid. When you become wise and knowing then you bear more responsibility. And then, if you do a stupid thing, then you really bear the consequences of it. And this is certainly the case here. The children of Israel want to go and travel through the land of Edom. Now, you remember Edom is the land, that's where Esau, the brother of uh, Jacob, lived, and uh, the, the, the red-headed ones, and that's where the red hair once in a while comes around in Jewish people, comes from Esau. Uh, some of his genes are carrying over. 
And uh, they want to go through that land, and they offer to go through and not just stay on the road, not stop, not go through a vineyard, not go through a field, not not to use water, nothing. They'll just, just walk through. They're just asking permission to walk through. And the Edomites say no. They refuse even that hospitality of brotherhood. Verse 21 there of chapter 20 says, Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through its territory. So Israel turned away from him. They had to turn away and go a longer way into the wilderness even further and deeper, which was very difficult. And again, another test comes upon the children of Israel. You'd think we'd learn the lesson the one at the time before. No, no, no. We, we still got to learn more lessons. In uh, chapter 21 and verse 4, it says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable food. They're referring to manna, the bread from heaven. We loathe it now. And again, you know, more frustration, more discouragement, more being worn down, and they're ready to quit and give up. And they're tired of camping in the wilderness. I ain't going to understand being tired of camping, but, you know, they were experienced at this. And then it says, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord, and he may reprove, remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and put it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Interesting uh, thing. It's the symbol that is used for the medical profession. You ever seen that little, that little staff with a little squiggly serpent uh, going up. The whole medical profession uses the symbol that Moses made here to deal with the fiery serpents. A symbol of healing. How is this possible that the very thing that is the judgment, the serpents in this particular case, how is it that the very symbol of the judgment is the very thing that becomes the thing for healing? How is that possible? You know, I thought the symbol would indicate just one thing. I mean, you know, but, but in this case, the symbol of the serpent on Moses' staff now becomes the symbol of healing. Well, the answer to here is the same as what we had with the ash of the red heifer. How is it that the, this guy becomes impure and that guy becomes pure? How is it that the very thing that symbolizes clean, which became unclean, in this particular case, the very thing that was the judgment becomes healing? How is, how is that possible? It all works. Now, the first one was clearly about the Messiah. We know he was the sacrifice taken outside the camp. We know that was about the Messiah. Even himself, he used the waters, the purification waters, to make the wine. What is this one? What's this symbol? How does this tie into the Messiah? Well, this is the story of Nicodemus. You know, the wise religious man who knew the Torah, and he came out to the Messiah, had to have a little private conversation with him at night so nobody would see. 
And he came out and had a little private conversation. And there in John 3, it said, he said to him, he said, well, how can a guy have eternal life? He says, well, he has to be born again. Born again? What are you talking about? Born again? What are you, you, know, you can't, can't get back in your mother's womb and be born again. What are you talking about? He said, no, 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 no. I'm talking about being born of the Spirit. You're born of the flesh and you're born of the Spirit. He says, I tell you, you have to be born again. He said, really, I don't understand this. He says, you, a man of Israel, a teacher of the law, you don't understand this? He says, well, let me explain it this way. I tell you that unless the man, the son of man, is lifted up just like the serpent was lifted up in Moses' staff in the wilderness, you will not live. The symbol of that serpent, the judgment, up on the staff of Moses being lifted up before the children of Israel was the symbol of a future crucifixion, the judgment to come upon the perfect sacrifice. That anyone that would just look at it would live. Pretty powerful sacrifice. Pretty powerful symbol. I can imagine, I was many years ago, I remember this fellow teaching me this story about it, and he says, I could just see this guy laying in his cot, you know, there in this tent. He's been bit by one of these snakes, and he's laying there in agony. And his grandson comes in, and he says, Grandpa, he's Grandpa, he says, i got good news. Moses has interceded for us and has gone to the Lord. The Lord has told Moses all he needs to do is make a bronze serpent and fold it around his staff, and he's going to bring it through all of the all of the camps of Israel, all you have to do is look at it and you'll be healed. And in the story, you can imagine this guy laying there in his cot in agony going, what? He's got a what? I just have to look at it and I'll be healed? Well, that's the silly thing that hurt me. That's the symbol of the thing that hurt me. What do you mean I just have to look at it and be healed? The struggle that have must have been of faith, because the only thing that makes sense there is faith. Will I try it? Will I simply go with the word of Moses and the Lord? Will I just try that? It didn't. They didn't say you had to, you know, crawl your way down to the tabernacle and you had to make a couple of sacrifices and had to, you know, do other things. They just said, just lay there and look at the thing. And that's how simple the gospel is to us. He's been raised up, and all we have to do is look and be healed. But we won't do it. We won't look and be healed. My own brethren don't understand the story. To just look at the lifted up Messiah and be healed. It's like it's too hard, you know, to believe that it could happen. And it's not like, you know, they're going to be able to go around and say to God, well, so, well, we didn't really understand that message, and we didn't really, we really didn't understand what you were trying to tell us there, because every time they went to the doctor, they saw the symbol. You know how many Jewish doctors there are on the world? A whole bunch. they all going around bearing this symbol of the staff of Moses with the, with the serpent wrapped around it. You'd think somebody would finally ask and say, what's that mean? That's how how plain it is and how simple it is. Yet, we we won't believe. In most cases, we won't even look. We won't even look to see what is there. The rest of this uh, 
the rest of the story goes on to tell us more about having to deal with the Amorites and uh, how that they have to do battle with the king of the Amorites and that they're told not to fear them. And uh, it's kind of interesting. The Amorites come out and actually attack them and take some of them captive. And so God says, okay, go take all of them captive. So they go and they take everything captive. The city, everything. Take them all. Um, the enemy may have some temporary successes along the way. He, he may take a couple of us captive for a little while. He may harass us for a while. But in the end, but in the end, you know, the Lord will prevail and we will all take them captive. The meek will inherit the earth. The proud will have it for a short time. Those are lessons to us that come from these passages. Uh, all of which I would remind you very clearly point to the work of the Messiah and what the Messiah has done for us. Every once in a while, I'll, someone will finally get emboldened enough and they'll give me some criticism. And they'll say, in fact, uh, I've had the criticism. You know, Monty, you need to really teach more from the New Testament. You really need to, you know, you need to quit spending so much time there in the Old Testament. Start, start spending a little time up there, you know, about Jesus and the New Testament. Those are the people who have no idea that that's what this is about. This is all about him. Every one of these symbols and messages are all about him. And to me, I believe that in the course of our study of Scripture that if we hear about Jesus and we hear about the Messiah and we hear about the fellowship of the brethren and the new covenant and all of those kinds of things, but we miss the instruction with regard to God's covenants that he has made with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with David, with Moses, the children of Israel, all the way up to the Messiah, you have no idea what the Messiah is doing for you. And in fact, I am convinced that many of my brethren have no idea what Messiah Yeshua has done for them. Oh, they know a few buzzwords, and they can repeat, repeat a few phrases that come from the New Testament. They have absolutely no basis of understanding as to what they really mean. They remind me of a tree with no trunk or roots. It's a pile of branches. The root is the Messiah of this great tree. The trunk is the Torah. It's where all the nourishment comes. It's the stability, the stabilizing factor. And yes, there's plenty of branches that bear great fruit. But you cannot cut off the root. You cannot cut off the trunk. You cannot cut off the branches. The whole tree has to be taken as a whole. And the thing that I would encourage uh, all those who participate in the Torah study is that you need to remember, you need to remember, we need to take it all in of the Lord. Let's not be parsing it up and just taking the pieces that we think we like. It reminds me of the kid who sits down to supper and all he wants is the dessert. Well, the dessert's nice. But as I've matured, I've learned that dessert's better after the meal. After we've had the right nourishment, and we've had a nice drink, and we've had our salad, and all of the other good things, then it's really tasty. And it's satisfying at that point. But if you just go for dessert, 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 
and then you lose your taste for sweet. And nothing is satisfying. And I see a whole lot of Christians, my brethren, walking around today in their faith totally dissatisfied. And quite honestly, miserable in their faith. And what they need is they need a good meal for a change. They need some real feeding to know the basis of who they are. We have such a tendency to look at our life in a horizontal plane. You know, I'm this I was born here, I'll die there, and I'm in this little stretch of time. But our life is also vertical. We are the product of our ancestors. And there will be others who will come after us. We're plugged into creation that way as well. The only way you can get a definition on that is to go back and to deal with these things. As the Lord says, remember, remember these things. It's what gives us the connectivity to God who has not changed but to our fathers as well and to understand those things. Thus, we have another Torah portion for us. Next week, we get to hear about Balaam, one of my favorite. And uh, hopefully, we'll uh, catch up on Korah, and we'll make that tape to you available as well, the teaching it was for last week. So if you would, um, bow your heads. Let us have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll have some other things. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you again for all those who've come out. Thank you, Lord, for the Torah. Thank you, Lord, for its instruction, how it teaches us about the deep things of the Messiah, the work of the Messiah. Thank you, Lord, that he said that he comes in the volume of the scroll. It's written of him. Thank you, Lord, for eyes to see him. Mysteries, Lord, that even King Solomon said he did not understand. Things which the sages of Israel have said they don't understand. All are clear for those who know the Messiah to see. Thank you, Lord, that you revealed such mysteries unto us and that we are the recipients and heirs of these great promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thank you, Lord, that we're a part of all of that. Thank you, Lord, that we can be a part of the covenants of you, that we have a basis. We're a people with a beginning, and we're a people with an end. Thank you, Lord, that you are our heritage, and we get to be a part of your family. And it's in your name and in the name of your family that we pray all these things. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.